to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. Growing up, birthdays were always a great celebration. My mom would make me the one fancy cake that she knew how to make, an M&M kitty cat cake. It looks a lot like this, but with M&Ms for the whiskers and facial features. We'd have some family and friends over, eat cake, open presents, the whole nine yards. And as I got a little older, the kitty cat cake was eventually replaced with Funfetti cakes. Now, as an adult, I can admit that that was probably a downgrade both in quality and in loving creation, but I'm not a huge chocoholic, so I'll take white cake any day. Give me some sprinkles, hey, I'm there for it. It certainly made mom's life easier. But birthdays weren't just about the cake. They were also about the party. And as an extrovert, it was about having friends at the party. I think the height of my birthday parties were during the Enchanted Castle years. Enchanted Castle is basically a fantasy-themed Chuck E. Cheese on steroids. Instead of terrible pizza, mouse animatronics, and a small selection of coin-operated entertainment games, Enchanted Castle has terrible pizza, Merlin's magical music makers, and over 10,000 square feet of video games, skee-ball, laser tag, go-karts, batting cages, I could go on. And when I finally went to a Chuck E. Cheese as an adult for a birthday party, I could not express my disappointment strongly enough. This is what spread all over the United States, this? If only you'd experience the joy of Enchanted Castle, which is now 60,000 square feet of fun. I mourn deeply for those of you who've only ever been to Chuck E. Cheese. Now, Enchanted Castle birthdays were epic, and I look forward to them every year. I don't really know how much money my parents had to save to make those birthdays possible, but I appreciate that, and I remember those birthdays fondly. And one of the great things about the birthday party isn't just the party for your birthday, it's the invites to all of your friends' parties as well, preferably also at Enchanted Castle. I needed Merlin to weave me some more musical magic. But sometimes something peculiar would happen. My friends, who were definitely at my party, extrovert here, would have birthdays, and my invite would get lost in the mail. And when I realized I wasn't invited or I heard about it later from someone who was there, I would be crushed. The confusion and the pain was real. It's hard to be left out and to come to the realization that maybe that relationship wasn't as close as you thought it was. And from that pain would come some confusion. Doesn't one good turn deserve another? What about I scratch your back, you scratch mine? What goes around comes around. Shouldn't an invite result in another invite? I mean, I didn't invite you because you'd invite me back. I mean, uh, I don't think I did, but you still should. And it's really easy to fall into this sort of thinking, into viewing relationships with others as transactional, not viewing people as people or friends, but rather as a means to an end. I want that promotion, so I'm going to be extra nice to my boss. I want that grade, so I'm going to kiss up to the professor. I want to be their friend because of the status it will give me or the fringe benefits because they're healthy, wealthy, or wise. I want the sale, so I'll be friendly, not because I'm a friend, but because I get something out of it. 
not the good and beautiful benefits of life-giving relationships, which is a reward in itself, but something else, something far less good and beautiful. The danger, of course, is that we start viewing all relationships and viewing all people this way, not as people, but as things, as avenues to get something. But real friendships are relationships that aren't transactional. And if we aren't careful, we may get what we want, the promotion or the sale or the grade or the status, but we won't get what we really need, deep and wonderful relationships with people and even with God. Because it isn't just people that we treat transactionally, we do it to God as well. And this is the great danger that Elisha's assistant Gehazi faces as we continue our series, The Holy Man, about the life of Elisha, the prophet of God in Israel this summer. What happens when we stop viewing people as people and start viewing them as objects or as means to our own advancement? What happens when we do that to God? Let's see what we can learn from Gehazi and Elisha. Now, two weeks ago, Megan taught us about Naaman, a respected military commander under the king of Aram, Damascus, and Syria, who suffered from leprosy. Naaman sought the help of Elisha after the advice of a servant girl who knew of the miracles performed by Elisha, the holy man of God. So Naaman heads to Israel in the hopes of being healed, and Elisha asks him to do something simple, active, and repeated. Wash himself in the Jordan River seven times. It wasn't a big spectacular show. It wasn't a magic trick or something that was done to him. It wasn't just a single moment, but rather it was a simple task that Naaman did himself repeatedly. And after some initial misgivings and frustration, Naaman does it and the leprosy is healed by God's power, working through the simple, active, and repeated action at Elisha's direction. He was healed in the same way that God changes us through simple, active, and repeated behaviors. And Naaman found healing, and he worshiped God. But the story doesn't actually end there. Naaman is so astounded and grateful, he returns to Elisha after the healing, and this is what happens. Then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. They stood before him, and Naaman said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha replied, as surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. And though Naaman urged him to take the gift, Elisha refused. Then Naaman said, all right, but please allow me to load two of my mules with earth from this place, and I will take it back home with me. From now on, I will never again offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other God except the Lord. However, may the Lord pardon me in this one thing. When my master, the king, goes into the temple of the god Remen to worship there and leans on my arm, may the Lord pardon me when I bow to. Go in peace, Elisha said. So Naaman started home again. Now this is a good and beautiful response from Naaman. He wants to express his gratitude tangibly, not as a payment for a job, but as a gift to show his thanks. This is a good reminder for us in life. If someone has helped us or cared for us, do we find a way to express our appreciation, a way that they will actually appreciate? A note, an act of service, a small gift, thoughtful thanks to others is a great expression of love. And on a grander scale, do we express our thanks to God for all the good gifts he gives us? Not just the huge things that we're worried about, 
but even the small things that we often overlook in our day-to-day -day lives. The bodies we have, the natural talents we've been given, the abilities and blessings of health and friends and family and home and a church community to grow in, the incredible nature that surrounds us in the world. Because once you start paying attention and seeing with eyes of gratitude, there's so much to be thankful for. So let's be people who cultivate hearts of gratitude to others and to God, because it's far better than ingratitude and complaint. And our gratitude becomes contagious to others and we'll keep our hearts focused on the wonderful blessings of our good and beautiful God. So while Naaman wanted to express his thanks tangibly, the greatest gift that Naaman can give to Elisha is actually the heart change that Naaman reveals. He now knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is only one God, and that is the only God he will worship in his heart, even if he has to be sensitive and wise around his king who worships differently. And Elisha blesses Naaman as he heads back to Damascus. We see in the scene that Elisha isn't serving God for money. His goal isn't stability or comfort or personal renown. And if you remember, Elisha was a wealthy landowner when he accepted Elijah's invitation to leave it all behind and become his apprentice and take up the mantle of a prophet of God after Elijah's service ended. If Elisha sought money or comfort, he would never have left his family and his home behind. Instead, Elisha killed the oxen he was plowing with and burned the plow itself, revealing his deep commitment and that he was never going back to that life again. There was nothing to return to for Elisha. In serving Elijah and embracing the call in his life, he discovered the life that was truly life, not perfect or comfortable or easy, but full of purpose and significance, joy in spite of circumstance, and most importantly, intimacy with God. In fact, it's distinctly possible in the scene that the gifts that Naaman was offering were a temptation, were a call back to where he'd come from. And it was important for Elisha to refuse for himself, as well as a way to communicate that God is not a God that you bargain with or pay off. Miracles aren't something to be purchased. Elisha isn't going back, and he's not a miracle worker for hire. He is a prophet of the living God. Now, unfortunately, Elisha's servant Gehazi didn't follow Elisha's lead here and instead revealed a heart that was beating out of rhythm with the heartbeat of God. This is verse 20. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, my master should not have let this Aramean get away without accepting any of his gifts. As surely as the Lord lives, I will chase after him and get something from him. So Gehazi set off after Naaman. When Naaman saw Gehazi running after him, he climbed down from his chariot and went to meet him. Is, that, is everything all right? Naaman asked. Yes, Gehazi said, but my master has sent me to tell you that two young prophets from the hill country of Ephraim have just arrived. He would like 75 pounds of silver and two sets of clothing to give to them. By all means, take twice as much silver, Naaman insisted. He gave him two sets of clothing, tied up the money in two bags, and sent two of his servants to carry the gifts for Gehazi. But when they arrived at the citadel, Gehazi took the gifts from the servants and sent the men back. Then he went and hid the gifts inside the house. While Elisha was content and satisfied, perhaps even rejoicing that God had healed Naaman body and soul, Gehazi was not. 
Gehazi wanted something from Naaman. Gehazi wasn't out for Naaman's good or Elisha's good. He was out for his own. And have you ever been in a situation like this where your sensibilities were offended, where you can't believe that someone didn't turn the situation to their advantage? Gehazi can't believe that Elisha wouldn't take the gifts that were offered to him. Surely Elisha wasn't actually secure and satisfied in the love of God and the purposeful work that God had given him to do. Who would be content with that? Surely Elisha needed something like a few outfits for those mysterious prophets who'd arrived and 75 pounds of silver, because that makes sense. It's all for Elisha, really. And it's easy to tell ourselves a story that isn't true, even about our own motives. But Gehazi's words and actions are revealing that while Elisha may be secure and satisfied, that Elisha isn't in need, Gehazi needs deeply. He longs for some of what Naaman is offering. And if Elisha doesn't want it, he's going to get some for himself. Gehazi engages in deception and greed, selfishness, and a willingness to trade on the name of Elisha and the miracle that God did for his own gain. And this is deeply problematic. But there's something else happening here that I don't want us to miss. Gehazi is treating Naaman not as a person to be loved or a being that bears the image of God, but as an it, as a means to an end, his own security and enrichment. Gehazi is treating Naaman transactionally. Jewish philosopher Martin Buber asserts that we do this all the time. We have I-it relationships. When people don't do what we want them to do, when they frustrate our plans or our view of our lives, we don't treat them as uniquely created and loved children of God, but as a thing. Instead, Buber asserts we shouldn't have I-it relationships, we should have I-thou relationships. Relationships with the thou indicating the deep respect and significance of others. The person you interact with has their own dreams and desires, problems and pains, gifts and grace. And God loves them desperately, at least as much as he loves you. C.S. Lewis encourages us this way. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Gehazi wasn't treating Naaman as an eternal creation that God delights in. He wasn't treating Naaman as a thou 
but rather as an it. And when we treat people this way, we badly miss the heart of following Jesus. Because there's this vital connection between loving God and loving others. Over and over again, Jesus tells us that God is absolutely fixated on people. He's like a shepherd who's lost a sheep. He's like a widow who's lost a coin. He's like a father who's lost a son. God is ceaselessly preoccupied with loving and pursuing and rescuing people. And Jesus told his followers that the greatest commandment is to love God and to love people. And the two absolutely cannot be separated. It is impossible to love God and not love the people that he gave everything for. Pastor and author John Ortberg says it this way. People who don't love people can't love God, just as people who don't know the multiplication table can't do algebra. They may know a lot about the Bible, they may be quite churchy, and they may carefully avoid scandalous sins and be thought of as spiritually advanced, but this is an error, and one that deeply damages both those inside and outside the church. Just as love is the ultimate expression of the law, so lovelessness is the ultimate expression of sin. Can you imagine how Naaman would have felt when he discovered that he'd been deceived by Gehazi? That Elisha didn't request those items that he gave in gratitude? Naaman would have felt used. And I know that I felt that way. And I know that I have been Gehazi who has used others and not treated them with the dignity that they deserve. If we want to have relationships, real relationships that are life-giving and true, we need to stop treating others as objects for our pleasure or purpose and embrace the way of Jesus. In John 15, 13, Jesus describes real friendship this way. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. This is real friendship. Friendship marked by service and sacrifice, not by trying to make a buck or to get something out of a relationship like Gehazi did. Jesus' way is different. So I wanna ask you today, who do you serve and sacrifice for? And who does that for you? Because this is the key to true friendship and it is all too rare today. The most important aspect of true friendship is non-strategic servanthood. Friends are people who serve each other when there is no benefit to themselves. They care about each other even when it is risky and hard. Friends, real friends are people who have made a commitment to each other that is marked by this non-strategic servanthood. And unfortunately today, we often confuse friends with friendly people. For instance, a few years ago, I was texting with someone a lot, a lot more than I normally would. I responded quickly, I answered questions, and when I met him in the parking lot of the CBS by my house, I really hoped he would buy the clock radio I was selling on Craigslist. Our whole conversation was engaging and interesting. We talked about being from the Midwest, what sort of work we did, how long we'd been in Tucson, some of our hobbies. But at the end of the day, when he decided not to buy my radio because it wouldn't play CDs, yes, it's been that long, our friendship was over. I am a friendly person, but it does not mean that we were friends. In fact, I don't even remember his name. Our society has badly confused friendly people with true friendship. 
And we all have mutually beneficial relationships with business associates or classmates that are nice. Facebook or Instagram friends that comment on our statuses or like our photos, but these are not true friendships. A friend is not someone you are devoted to because of what they can do for you or because they are useful to you or just plain bored on, on the computer, but you are devoted to them just because they are your friend. Real community is based on irrational commitment to the well-being of its members. In great communities, people help each other out and go the extra mile without asking the question, what's in it for me? When was the last time you participated in some non-strategic servanthood? Maybe that's taking time to listen to someone you really know needs to talk. Maybe it's having a hard conversation with a friend so they can grow. Maybe it's anonymously helping a friend pay off their rent or mortgage that month, or loaning them an item that you know they really need. Maybe it's buying a gift for one of your friends that they know they will enjoy for no reason other than their joy. One of our friends recently was at an estate sale and saw something that they thought our kids would enjoy, and they bought it on the spot and they brought it right over to our house and our kids were delighted. In fact, it's the only thing they bought at that estate sale. And let's be honest, there's no repayment coming from Roland and Aiden. In fact, a few years from now, they won't even remember it happened. The gift was just that. It was a gift. It was non-strategic servanthood. How can you practice non-strategic servanthood this week? Unfortunately for Gehazi, his deception didn't stay hidden for long. When he went into his master, Elisha asked him, where have you been, Gehazi? I haven't been anywhere, he replied. Well, Elisha asked him, don't you realize that I was there in spirit when Naaman stepped down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to receive money and clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and cattle and male and female servants? Because you have done this, you and your descendants will suffer from Naaman's leprosy forever. When Gehazi left the room, he was covered with leprosy. His skin was white as snow. Elijah knew all along. It wasn't a secret. It seems that God revealed the truth to Elisha and Gehazi's betrayal had significant consequences. And a surface reading to this response from Elisha seems pretty intense. But there is a deeper heart condition and character flaw that's been revealed in Gehazi. And it's important to understand these deeper issues when we look at situations that appear to be some aspect of divine justice that is so swift and seemingly harsh so that we understand what's actually happening. Gehazi had a front row seat to see how God worked in and through Elisha. He was witness to God's power, and more than that even, he was a representative of God by virtue of his position as Elisha's apprentice. Much like Elisha's relationship with Elijah, Gehazi had a chance to be like Elisha. He followed him closely. He's the only member of Elisha's school of prophets that's named. He features in many of the stories that we've looked at this summer. But Gehazi was not becoming more like Elisha. He wasn't following Elisha's example of finding his worth and purpose and security in a relationship with God. Gehazi wanted something for himself, and he betrayed both Elisha and God to get it. His heart wasn't focused on God and others. It was still firmly focused on himself. And this is also about the danger of the distrust that can be developed for one of God's prophets 
when something like this goes on, when a deception like this happens. The example of what it looks like to love God and others, that's what the prophet is supposed to be, to serve without agenda and ambition. But Gehazi's actions didn't merely make him look bad or even made Elisha look bad. They make God look bad. Remember, Elisha walked away from wealth to serve God and Gehazi, his right-hand man, much like Elisha was with Elijah, wasn't in the same place. Instead of reveling in God's presence and his miracles, instead of caring for the people of God and making the world more as it's made to be, Gehazi masqueraded as caring about those things, but reveals deeply that he was the center of his life and he would deceive and trade on the miracles performed by Elisha for his own enrichment and security. Following this way always leads to death. And unfortunately for Gehazi, his outer condition reflected his inner one. And thankfully, there was still a path of redemption. Gehazi wasn't struck dead. He just had a disease. He was removed from the community so the heart condition wouldn't infect others. But there is still chance for redemption and reconciliation long term. But the great danger was that Gehazi treated Naaman as a thing, an object to get him what he wanted. And if we aren't careful, we not only treat other people this way, but we treat God this way too. It's so ingrained in us in culture that we project it onto God because there's just so much that's out of our control. Will I maintain my health? Will my grades be good? Will my teachers grade fairly? Will they be generous to me? Will I get into grad school or get that job? Will my business be successful? Will I be promoted? Will I find a spouse or a house? Will my kids flourish? Will I be able to retire comfortably? While we may not offer a sacrifice to ensure health or success in business as they used to do, in the face of all that is uncontrollable, we pray to God, which is good and beautiful, because we're supposed to cast all of our cares on him because he cares for us. But prayer is not a way to control God, it's a way to relationship with God. We can ask, we can share, we can be in a relationship, we can find comfort and peace in spite of circumstance, but God does not have to act in the way we want him to. But sometimes, when we treat God transactionally, we begin to believe that God has to help us. That when we're faithful, he will be faithful to us in the specific way we want him to be faithful. And God is faithful all the time, but not always in the way that we want. And there is no promise in the Bible of material blessings or prosperity if you follow Jesus. In fact, the Bible warns us again and again that we are in danger of putting too much faith in the things of this world and that they will betray us. But it's easy to believe that we have this bargain with God. But a bargain isn't following Jesus. With our prayers and service and morality, we don't put God in our debt to ensure blessings. God is not a vending machine. God is not an it. This is not the avenue to a restored relationship with God because ultimately it's placing ourselves at the center, even if it might seem to feel right, even if it seems to fit into the narratives we've heard about how life and religious life works. We might feel holy or religious and godly, but it is a betrayal. We don't want God. We want his blessings in exchange for our good behavior. And he better give it to us or everything falls apart.
Maybe you remember a famous story Jesus told about a father who had two sons. One was a prodigal. He was the younger son and he demanded his portion of his inheritance immediately. He effectively told his dad, I don't want you. I don't want a relationship with you. I wish you were dad dead so I could have your stuff. And incredibly, the father in the story gives this son what he asked for. And the son then had freedom from constraints and freedom from relationships and he tried life his way. And when life his way didn't deliver, as it fails to deliver for us as well, he returned home to find his father watching down the road for his son to come home. And the son starts to confess his foolishness and wrongs, to beg not for the position of a son, but as a servant because he knows his father treats his servants with dignity like children of God. But that dignified Jewish father runs and embraces his son and celebrates his return. The child who cost him half of all he owned was still his little boy, and the father's love had never wavered. So the celebration was on. And sometimes we forget that this beautiful story doesn't end here, because there was a son who never left home, the eldest son, and that son was just as lost as the younger one. In that day and age, all of life and work was housed in the family unit, and being a dutiful and faithful son meant working the fields and taking care of your family's wealth and possessions, which in an agricultural society was land and animals. The right thing to do was to work to care for your family's property and possessions until the patriarch, until the father of the family died, at which point you as the eldest son would assume the role of patriarch and become the owner of all the family's wealth and possessions. So because he's an oldest child, while his younger brother is off in a distant country living the high life, the older brother dutifully stays home working in his father's household like a good son should. But now his younger brother is back, and instead of reprimanding the younger brother for being a terrible, wayward, ungrateful son, when he finally returns, his dad celebrates? Remember, the younger son essentially told his father that he wished he was dead. But the father throws a huge party to celebrate him, not even mentioning how disgraceful and unacceptable the actions of this younger son were to the entire family. And this is the older brother's response on hearing the news. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. The older brother is totally outraged. He has lived a life the way you're supposed to, following the rules, doing the right thing, staying home and working with his dad. And he feels like the choices he's made should warrant him special treatment from the father because he was the good kid. And being the good kid meant that you get the good things. Following the rules means that nothing bad happens to you. Doing the right things that means that you get a better life than the people who do the wrong thing. And when his dad lets his baby brother who made all the wrong choices and did all the wrong things come back like nothing ever happened, throwing him a giant party, the older brother knows it isn't fair. Doing the wrong thing, running away like his younger brother did, means you should have a worse life than the person who did the right thing. 
But here again, the older son is treating his father as an object, as an it, as a means to an end. We realize that he has not stayed home because he felt like it was home. Home is the place that you long to be, that you love to be, that your heart aches for when you're not there. You don't stay in a place called home because you have to. You stay in a place called home because you want to be, because it's the place that you feel whole and happy and fulfilled, because it's the place where the people you love are. I have a little picture on my bedside table that Megan gave me that says, you are my home. Because home is where the one I love is. But this place with the father was not home for the older brother. It's not a place like that because he wants it to be. He's there because he feels like he has to be there. It's not the place where the one he loves is. It's not home because he doesn't love anyone there. The younger brother essentially told his dad that he wished he was dead. The older brother is essentially revealing the same sentiment here. He tells his dad that he feels like it a slave that he stayed out of obligation, not out of love. He tells his father that the real reason behind being good all these years is not because he wants to build a home with his father and make something great and beautiful together or because he loves his dad and is passionate about what the father is passionate about, but because he's hoping that by being good, he will get a good life, lots of wealth and property and the material blessings of this world. He doesn't care about his dad and he doesn't care about his brother. He really only cares about himself and controlling the lot he's dealt in life by following the rules to the letter. And although he may physically be at a place with his father, the older brother is miles and miles away from home, just as lost as the younger brother who actually left. And the story ends with this from the father to the son. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Jesus is telling us that the greatest joy in life is to have a rich, deep, meaningful relationship with God. That in God's presence there is fullness of joy. That we can be home with him right now. Not because we'll get something out of it, though we will get everything that we actually need but because the one that we love is there. God wants our hearts. He wants us to be with him. Not do's and don'ts, not fear and manipulation through good works, but communion with the Father and being conformed to the image of Christ, the life of the master. And from a heart that's centered on God and resting in his love, our actions that will naturally align with the law of love, with loving God and loving others in response to God's incredible love for us. One of the most beautiful parts about the second half of the story with, with Elisha and Naaman is Elisha refusing tangible gifts while taking great joy in serving God and Naaman, as well as seeing Naaman choose to worship God alone. When you care about someone, when you see them as God's cherished child, as a vow, your greatest desire for them, deeper than their external well-being or even their physical health, is that things are right between them and God. Elisha heals Naaman's body, but he also reveals the beauty of God's grace 
and love. God gives his gifts freely and his gift of relationship and love and forgiveness is available to all without cost to ourselves because Jesus has already paid the price. We don't have to bargain or cajole or manipulate God into loving us. We don't have to perform for his love. His love is given. Following Jesus' way is possible. A relationship with the source of all love and life is available right now through Jesus. So let's respond to his love and choose apprenticeship to Christ. And let's remember if someone is truly my friend, their deepest concern is the well-being of my character, my soul, my relationship with God. So I ask you today, are you caring for your friend's souls? And who's caring for yours? Let's choose today to be people who have an irrational commitment to each other, expressed in non-strategic servanthood. Let's treat each other as everlasting splendors that are becoming more and more like Christ. Let's choose the hard, messy, but wonderful path of true community and never live without it again. Jesus said that his followers would be known for their love and that that love would be a testament to the world that God is real and that transformation in Christ is possible. Jesus' path of love was a path of service and sacrifice, and that is how you know if someone is really your friend, and maybe more importantly, if you are really their friend. And when we do this together as a community, Jesus is present where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, we just confess that we often treat others like it. So we often treat you like it, like a means to an end. We treat you transactionally. We treat each other transactionally. Instead of actually caring for each other, for caring about them without any benefit to ourselves beyond just the benefit of life-giving relationship. It's so easy to see the opportunity, to take advantage, to bargain, to manipulate, and we know it fails in relationships with others, and we know that's not how it works with you either. You are not a thing to be manipulated, but rather a God to be loved. May we be people of your love, Jesus. May we give love away and give love away because you have lavished us with our love. And as we do that, help others realize that you love them even more than we can. We love you, Jesus. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at damascusroadtucson.com.